Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most interesting and invigorating and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So, come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas, and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks, as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the wisdom of, coming up today, the two loves, Eros and Agape. Hey, how's it going, everybody? I hope all is good. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, so in this episode, I want to try to say something about, well, about two kinds of love. Namely, Eros and Agape. Two kinds of love that we're all familiar with, even if we don't necessarily recognize the names here. Now, suffice it to say, the history and content of Eros and Agape is super interesting, and they each, in their own way, express incredibly powerful and important aspects of love. Okay, well, so that said, let's start with eros. Okay, so the ancient Greek term eros is used to refer to that aspect of love constituting a passionate, intense desire for something. Actually, more specifically, a sexual desire. Hence, of course, the, uh, the modern notion of erotic. Now, we see one of the first and, uh, and certainly the greatest exploration of Eros in Plato's writings. For example, in his dialogues, the Symposium and the Phaedrus, he undertakes an analysis of Eros, the like of which had never been presented before. And, uh, and since, too. Actually, he not only analyzes it, he absolutely celebrates it. Eros as sexual desire is absolutely key for him. All genuine love begins with sexual desire spurned on by the beauty of another, he says. Now, that doesn't mean that love or Eros stays at this level for him. It doesn't. And that's because Eros for him is an ascendant force. And so, what it ultimately does is it seeks the higher, you know, the, the more transcendent. But still, it all begins with the body for Plato. It begins with the desire for another beautiful body. 
Actually, you know, speaking of this uh, physical aspect of Eros and this powerful desire for beauty, a really good example here, even earlier than Plato, would be the love or the attraction between Paris and Helen of Troy, you know, from, from Homer. I mean, think about the power of Eros here and the potency of the beauty which causes it. I mean, Paris is so overtaken by Helen's beauty that what he does is he, he literally steals her from Menelaus. Well, because of this, I think you could argue that all the evil of the Trojan War is born out of this love, out of this desire for beauty. Actually, you know, on this point, there's an astonishing moment in Homer when, uh, later after the fall of Troy, the chiefs of Troy, catch a glimpse of Helen moving along the ramparts, and they say to themselves that no wonder the Greeks and the Trojans chose to suffer under war for all those years. They did it all because of her. It was her beauty. Her terrible beauty. Now, terrible beauty, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, this is the power and consequence of Eros. It's an absolutely destabilizing force. Okay, well, so um, that's the ancient Greeks and Eros. But here's the thing. Later with uh, Christianity, we get something quite different, to say the least. That's to say, Christianity introduces an aspect of love very, very different from the Greek conception of Eros. It was actually so different that it required a new designation or term, namely, agape. And you know what? It's interesting. The New Testament doesn't use the word eros anywhere. It's just, uh, it's just not in there. And again, what this strongly suggests is that what the, the writers of the New Testament wanted to capture when they spoke of love had nothing to do with the older eros aspect of it. In other words, what they wanted to make sure love had nothing to do with was, well, the sensuality or sexual desire aspect of Eros. And, um, let's face it, Jesus and his life exemplifies this. Actually, what the New Testament writers do is they make the perfect man and the Son of God someone who has no discernible sexual desire. And uh, not only that, but they make him the child of a virgin. And uh, what's more, what Jesus is made to say about, about sexual transgressive behavior is really interesting as well. I mean, basically, he, he goes pretty, pretty extreme. And what he says is that it's not just external sexual behavior that's wrong. It's also bad to have any internal lustful desire. So. What's going on inside of you is just as significant as your outer act. And of course, this is what he says in that famous passage in Matthew, which goes, You have heard that it was said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. And, um, and by the way, it's not just Jesus that has this particular view of sexuality. Remember that St. Paul, too, stipulates for a life of sexual abstinence, 
and uh, and also tells us that the fornicators and the voluptuous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so the sensual or sexual aspect is an aspect of love that um that unlike the ancient Greeks, Christianity doesn't really endorse. But what exactly is love as agape then, severed as it seems to be from eros? Well, of course, what it is, is divine love, which is to say, it's essentially unconditional love. It's a love that extends not just to to friends, but to enemy and persecutor alike, to saints and to sinners. In this way, it's not the discriminating kind of love that Eros is. Rather, it's God's universal love, which is general and not selective. It's God loving all of his children equally, no matter who they are or what they've done. Okay, so I, I very quickly run over a bit of the historical context relating to, um, to these two aspects of love. But now, let's take a closer look at them conceptually. So, what are some of the respective characteristics of Eros and Agape, and so how do they contrast with one another? Well, okay, so what Eros love is often characterized as is as, um, as egocentric and acquisitive in nature. That's to say, ultimately, it's the kind of love concerned with, with self and with acquiring and possessing the object of one's desire. On the other hand, agape love is, is often characterized as the opposite of this. It's characterized as, uh, as selfless and unmotivated. In other words, it's a love that rejects all self-gain and loves others purely for themselves. Okay, but you know, there's another way of putting all this. And it comes in the form of a simple-looking question. But one which, uh, which introduces a profound distinction. So, the question goes like this. It goes, do we love something because we find value in it, or do we find value in it because we love it? Now, this sort of sounds benign, right? But like I said, it's not at all. So, let's break it down and see how it's uh, related to eros and agape love. Let's start with the, the first part, the part that asks us if we love something because, uh, because we find value in it. So what this is saying is that we love someone because we find certain of their features attractive or valuable. Now, that's exactly the kind of love we see in Plato, the one I talked about earlier, where the reason someone loves another person is because of their beauty. Paris's love for Helen being a good example here. So, this is Eros love. Okay, now the second part of the question the part that asks us if we value something because we love it. So, what does that mean? Well, what that's saying is that the reason we find someone valuable is because we love them. Now, that's God or Jesus' love for humans. It's agape love. In other words, God doesn't love us because of, uh, because of certain valuable qualities we might have. But rather, we all become valuable precisely because God loves us. So, 
if it's not already clear, notice the, the fundamental difference between the two questions. In the first one, in Eros love, our love for someone arises as a response to some prior or antecedent value. Well, in the second one, agape love, love comes first. Then the value of the one being loved comes into existence as a result of this. Okay, so I hope all that made some sense. Now, before I end, I want to raise some uh, some possible issues or problems here for both of these types of love. So, let's take uh, Eros love first. So, notice a seemingly unwelcome consequence of Eros love one where one loves another only because of certain properties they have. The consequence is this. If the reason we love someone is because of certain properties they have, then we can also expect to love others who share those same properties, right? In other words, Eros love doesn't seem to be exclusionary. Actually, this is what Plato believed and even welcomed. He thought it was silly to focus in on one beautiful person when there were so many others who were also beautiful. Best, then, to, uh, to spread the love around. But again, this might not be a consequence many of us are comfortable with, or at least comfortable admitting to. We just don't want to see our beloved as, uh, as replaceable like this. Okay, so... That's one of the major issues with, uh, with Eros love. But what about agape love? What's the issue there? Well, there are a few, but, um, but here's one. If agape or, uh, or divine love is essentially unconditional love, if, if love is not deserved, in other words, if being loved has, has nothing to do with having certain meritorious properties, then where exactly is the justification in being loved? Now, it might seem like it, it shouldn't be justified, that, that love shouldn't be conditional. But, I mean, think about it like this. What if you asked your lover why it is they love you? And their response was, I don't know, no reason really. Now, would you really be satisfied with, with this kind of response? Don't you want to be told what it is about you specifically that they love? Something about you that's, that's special or different. Something that warrants their appreciation of you and not somebody else. But notice that agape love can't give you the answer that you really want. Because it's an unconditional love, it's a love that can't be called on to justify loving a particular person. It's a love that loves without any reasons. But sometimes reasons are better than no reasons at all. I mean, if unconditional love strips us of all possible qualities then what exactly is our relationship based on that sets us apart from any other relationship? Why me, and you, and us, and not just everyone, and anyone? And what's more, at the end of the day, is it really rational to love someone no matter what? No matter what horrible and abusive qualities somebody has? Should we agree with uh, Billie Holiday's line in her song, My Man, that whatever my man is, 
I'm his forevermore. Is it really best to think of love as, as completely blind like this? I don't think so. Nope. When love is seen as broad enough in scope to include the uncaring and the malicious and the vile, then, well, it's no love to strive for. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com 